Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, comedian, filmmaker, and do you know what I'm doing right now? What, what are you doing right now? I'm enjoying a nice, refreshing glass of Ecto Cooler. <laughs> oh, are you? Are you actually? Because I see, I see you drinking something. And if you're actually drinking Ecto Cooler, it did look like it was glowing. <laughs> I think the last time I had Ecto Cooler, you remember in elementary school, and you would have like before, uh, like kids' birthday parties, and their parents were allowed to bake cupcakes, which now they're not allowed to. I don't know if you guys know this, but having a kid in elementary school everything has to be store-bought now and ingredients listed because of allergies and all that stuff so that's fun take the fun out of a birthday party um anyway um the last time i had ecto cooler i think was like one of those class parties back in the day yeah i feel like i had it at summer camp a lot but i think they may have brought it back recently because of the nostalgia factor for people like us and for people like our producer david rosen who uh, we should introduce here at the top because in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1984, and this episode is Dave's pick. So as you can maybe guess from the Ecto Cooler talk, Dave, what did you pick? I went with the classic Ghostbusters. And when did you last have Ecto Cooler, Dave? Uh, I, I definitely had it many, many times throughout my life, but I can't tell you when the last time it was a long time ago. Let's just say that. Yeah. We really should have ordered like a, a case of Ecto cooler that we could have distributed amongst <laughs> oh, yeah. the three of us for this episode. Now, Dave, did you pick this film because of your striking resemblance to Egon Spangler? Was that the impetus for this pick? I was going to say a little bit of all of them, but yeah, you know. Dave is like a Ghostbuster <laughs> amalgamation. He's a mashup. <laughs> yeah. I see a lot of Winston in you, Dave. Yeah, yes. maybe, maybe not that. <laughs> but um, so Dave, uh, what, why did you, uh, why did you pick Ghostbusters for us? Well, honestly, as we were looking over the list of movies that we were already planning on talking about when I noticed that it was 1984 and Ghostbusters wasn't on the list, I just couldn't let that happen. Uh, you know, it, Ghostbusters isn't my favorite movie. It's not like one of my all-time favorites, although I do love it, but it's just too, too influential, too important, too just fun of a movie to skip over. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, and we've talked about this in a bunch of episodes. This is such a massive year for these big blockbusters that not only were successful, but also became this these long-running pop culture phenomena. And Ghostbusters is right up there as one of those. Yeah. Dave, Absolutely. you have uh, filled a gaping hole for us, as you are known to do in various yes. circles throughout your life. Um, mm -hmm. I agree. You know, I was thinking about this today. I think other than Star Wars, this is the film that we're covering that has had the widest cultural influence and merchandise and pop cultural reference points and just is always there in our lives. Yeah, which maybe we'll get into this later, but with watching this movie, it's really weird that that's the case. You would not <laughs> so think true. that that would be the case with this movie. But it was, it was a huge success right out of the gate. Uh, even though the studio, some people at the studio were skeptical about this. And we talked about this in other episodes this season when we talked about Beverly Hills Cop and when we talked about Gremlins, the idea of mixing genres here and putting action and comedy or horror and comedy together was really weird and unfamiliar to people apparently at this time. So studio executives were wary of doing that. But this movie was a huge success. It grossed $296.4 million on its budget of between 25 and 30 million, apparently. So a, a relatively high budget for 1984, but that's still massive success. It was the second highest grossing movie of 1984, just behind Beverly Hills Cop, which of course we talked about in an earlier episode. And it was critically acclaimed. It was nominated for tons of awards, including two Oscars for Best Visual Effects and for Best Original Song for the theme song by Ray Parker Jr., which was also nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Original Song and won the BAFTA for Best Original Song. Um, the movie itself was also nominated for the Best Picture Musical or Comedy and Best Actor Musical or Comedy for Bill Murray at the Golden Globes. It did not win those. And that theme song spent three weeks at number one on the Billboard charts and it just is ubiquitous. And that's another theme of this season is that 
so many uh, iconic songs or huge hit songs that came out of these movies that we're talking about. You are right, Josh. I was thinking about that today as well. This is um, maybe the year that soundtracks really solidify themselves as pop cultural reference points. Obviously, we know how important they are to movies and you know, we've seen before the crossover hits, but that that now they become almost like inseparable, right? You can't think of the song without the movie or the video for the Ghostbusters song, which has all the celebrities in there yelling Ghostbusters. It's all, you know, forming into one uh, giant melty blob of money that the <laughs> studios get to recoup. They said that this song added $20 million uh, extra, maybe of profit. Just the, because of what a hit it was. Yeah, I believe it because that song was so huge. And I feel like I, uh, I mean, I, I'd, I'd seen this movie again a few years ago when the, the remake came out. But in general, I feel like I had stronger memories of the song than the movie, even like from my childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously it's inseparable. I mean, unlike some of the other big songs from movies that we've talked about, this literally is singing about the Ghostbusters. So you you couldn't possibly separate it from the movie. And, and I think we all knew the words as kids and probably still know, you know, most of the words, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Again, I think as a kid, the song was probably more enjoyable to me or, or I, I spent more time with than the movie itself. I mean, in part because you could hear the song on the radio or whatever, whereas the movie, you'd have to rent a video of it in order to watch it. Um, but yeah, that song is just... And they they almost... Initially, weren't going to have a a theme song. They had a score that was that included a theme, and then they decided we need pop songs in this movie. So imagine if they had decided not to do that. One thing I read was that they had uh, tried out like fifty to sixty different theme songs, which you know that's on Wikipedia, so maybe it's true, maybe it's not right. But um, and then you know the power of love was kind of the placeholder in there, and that's a whole other point in the legacy is that Huey Lewis sued. These guys, because uh, the Ghostbusters theme has so many similarities to it, won. But then he went on like a behind the music show and talked about how he won. And then Ray Parker Jr. sued him because he uh, broke his non-disclosure and then he won. So, you know, there so is something lawsuits. weird in the neighborhood, Josh. There, There <laughs> is, but worked out well for Ray Parker Jr. As well as everyone, of course, involved in this movie. Because- hey, Josh, you want to know something fun about Ray Parker Jr.? Sure. He ain't afraid of no ghost. Mm, that is quite a fun fact. Was that also on Wikipedia? <laughs> I uh, I learned that as a child. Yeah. So um, I assume, Jason, you saw this as a child, right? Yeah, of course. I'm sure I saw it many times as a kid. But, like, you know, um, yeah, this is another one, like Gremlins or Beverly Hills Cop, where, like, it's always on. It's always a thing. Your friend, you know... Uh, went to a party and had won a costume contest for a best Ghostbuster, right? Or I had a friend who lived up the block and his dad owned a gas station and they always used to like talk about the time with pride that Bill Murray came in and pumped gas at the gas, like, and not just for fun, which sounds like something Bill Murray would do. Like, hey, I'm just going to pump gas for the day, but like filled up his tank there at the gas station, you know? So um, I watched it again, maybe a year ago. And um yeah, I, I've seen this a number of times. Yeah, and did you watch it with your daughter? Yeah, yeah, she likes this movie. Yeah. Um, and just just one thing, because you were talking about the latest version, I think it's more of a reboot than a, than a remake. Yeah, you it's, say. It's, I mean, it's hard to categorize uh, what exactly those, how it qualifies, but we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it later. I, I also saw this as a kid, I think, I assume. I wonder, because in 1984, I was probably too young to see this movie. But I, I remember being really into, like I said, the theme song, but just the idea of the Ghostbusters. I'm sure I saw the movie. I had all the toys. I remember being really into the cartoon series. Yeah. Um, including the other cartoon series, and we'll talk about this later, but the weird trademark copyright issues with this movie that allowed there to be an unrelated cartoon series called Ghostbusters. And I liked them both. And I remember having the toys from both and just kind of mingling them together because the difference <laughs> was not important. Whoa. Um, Josh, yeah. you were you were crossing streams even against Egon's advice there. Amazing. And, and, and toy streams. Yes. Yeah. I was creating a, a crossover in, you know, before that was a cool thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I agree with you. I had the toys. I mean, like I said, uh, Halloween costumes and, you know, 
obviously this is what this movie is made for like home video release right and cable so i'm sure even if you didn't see it at that age you probably saw it just a few years later because this is one especially on uh tv that your parents could let you watch and uh dave's parents were probably upset that there wasn't enough explicit sex in there for him to see as a young child but you know for the rest of us it was it's good good fun family film Right. Yeah, it, it is. And I'm sure I did. Again, I don't remember the specific first time I saw it or really any particular times, but um, I'm sure I saw it on TV or on home video or both. But I definitely remember being more into like the cartoon series and watching it on Saturday mornings along with every other cartoon that I was into as a kid. So Dave, do you have a specific memory of seeing this the first time? No, it just seemed to always be there. It's definitely something I watched a ton as a kid. And like you guys were saying, all the merchandise around it, the video games, like everything along the way. Yeah, yeah. And this is a movie that uh, is, is beloved across the board. I mean, not just by audiences at the time, not just by kids, but critics were also super into it for the most part. Uh, Siskel and Ebert gave it two thumbs up. Although Siskel was less enthused uh, about the movie than Ebert was, he uh, thought the comedy was good. He was less into the uh, big special effects stuff. And the dichotomy between those two elements is the theme in pretty much every review that I, uh, that I saw for this film from the time. Because again, that was a very new sort of thing. Um, although that's a, a major element of the movie that I think we still talk about. But uh, Roger Ebert in his review said, Ghostbusters is a head-on collision between two comic approaches that have rarely worked together very successfully. This time, they do. It's one, a special effects blockbuster, and two, a sly dialogue movie in which everybody talks to each other like smart graduate students who are in on the joke. In the movie's climactic scenes, an apocalyptic psychic mind quake is rocking Manhattan, and the experts talk like Bob and Ray. Ghostbusters has a lot of neat effects, some of them mind-boggling, others just quick little throwaways, as when a transparent green slime monster gobbles up a mouthful of hot dogs. No matter what effects are being used, they're placed at the service of the actors. Instead of feeling as if the characters have been carefully posed in front of special effects, we feel they're winging this adventure as they go along. And I think he's right about that, but on the other hand, that was very not true in terms of how the movie was created that they were not able to uh, kind of wing it in any way because of the, the extensive special effects. But yeah, I think even now we have so many movies like this that mix these big spectacle elements with comedy. And a lot of times it doesn't work, but this movie pulls it off. Josh, who are Bob and Ray? They are uh, old time kind of radio comedians, I believe, but I'm not sure. They're, they're people that Roger Ebert would know. <laughs> I should have looked that up. <laughs> Oh, okay. I've heard I've heard the names, but uh, you know I I'm not sure. It may be. I mean, it would be good if we had a producer on the show who had a phone who could look it up right now yeah. while you're while you're you know kind of uh, stretching for time. But you're right, Josh. Uh, right. A lot oh, of it these... is. Oh, it. Sorry, I just it is what I thought. It's uh, it's uh, Chris Elliott's dad, Bob Elliott, and uh, and Ray Goulding. Uh -oh. They were a, a comedy duo in uh in the 50s and uh and going forward so ah. sorry to cut you off there excellent work dave mm -hmm. so josh i agree with you um that yeah they were they the effects are in service to the story but um you were talking about how they might not have had the time to really make that happen and a lot of that is due to the actors uh yeah they had 13 months to take this thing from zero to on screen you know not just from like uh, write this script and get it filmed, but literally to have it from here's your idea. Now go rewrite a script, get it made and get it out in June of 1984. So there weren't many um, yeah, corners that they could they could kind of uh, take their time with there. It was just a stick and move, baby. Right. And I mean, the fact that they have all these special effects that have to be created means they can't sort of uh, make changes on the fly with how they're putting scenes together which is something that I think, um, you know, a lot of these comedy actors uh, and creators would be used to being able to do, but everything has to fit together. And we talked about this with Space Jam, actually, <laughs> the idea that there's so many extensive special effects that no matter what, you know, the actors have to stand here and they have to respond to this thing because we've already created it, um, you know, and so that doesn't leave as much room for comedy, but they still get that loose feel uh, here, even if they aren't 
actually being able to do that, it feels like they are. Yeah, the Ghostbusters should have um, put their proton packs on Space Jam and got that one into a ghost containment bin, if you ask me. They should. (laughs) And I feel like, you know, now with all the, I don't know who owns which property, but I I feel like with the, the, the pop culture crossover potential we would see ghostbusters versus space jam right now if that right. was possible the reboot <laughs> yes so uh janet maslin in the new york times was uh, a little more measured on this she says however good an idea it may have been to unleash mr murray in an exorcist like setting this film hasn't gotten very far past the idea stage Its jokes, characters, and storyline are as wispy as the ghosts themselves, and a good deal less substantial. As long as the film retains its playfulness and keeps the stakes low, things are promising. But once the trail leads to the refrigerator of Dana Barrett, which contains a hellhound and a gleaming apocalyptic vision, the film gets out of hand. Ivan Reitman, the director, subsequently has to contend with spectacles like a rooftop demonic shrine and a hundred-foot marshmallow dressed in a sailor suit marching up Central Park West. Not surprisingly, with all this going on, there is more attention to special effects than to humor. And I think she's wrong. I think they keep the humor throughout, and I think the very existence of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man is humor and is very funny, but uh, this is sort of the mildly negative uh, response here. I think that she's right in that the lower stakes stuff where they're just interacting with each other is better. But I agree with you. The humor is there throughout. Stay Puff Marshmallow Man is one of those jokes they go such a long way for. And it probably shouldn't pay off, but man, it's beloved. And I guess we just uh, kind of chalk that one up to Dan Aykroyd getting one over on all of us. I mean, I like it. And I think what's what's funny about it is it's just so weird and random, um, you know, and then you we, we do see some stay puffed marshmallows in Dana Barrett's apartment early. But I don't think we see the actual mascot in another form until he shows up in that giant uh, monster. Form well, yeah, that. it just comes out of nowhere in his explanation of why he it just popped into my mind, you know. Right. Right. But I memory. think that. I think the absurdity of it like that, that it is so random is part of what makes it funny. But uh, it didn't work for Janet Maslin and uh, maybe not for you either. Finally, Joseph Gelmis in Newsday said, summer movies are like amusement park rides. Let's say you've already had your adrenaline fix with the latest Indiana Jones roller coaster ride. And what you're looking for now is a good laugh. Where will you find it? At Ghostbusters, this season's most enjoyable movie funhouse. Ghostbusters is like romping through Disneyland's haunted house with Bill Murray. The comic tone of Ghostbusters is blasé. Murray, who is part humbug and part everyman, is inconvenienced more than awed by ghosts and demons. The illusions are realistic. They ought to be in a movie that costs $30 million. Yet, rather than turning its realistic array of monsters, ordinary ghosts and immortal demons invading through a time warp against the audience, Ghostbusters plays them strictly for comic relief. Their purpose is to provide a believable threat to be overcome by Murray and friends. I like that that characterization of the ghosts as like comic relief, almost. You know, they're 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 a sideshow as much as the effects are impressive and cost a lot of money. Like the ghosts are always secondary to the goofy antics of the characters, and I think that sticks through the movie. And of course, Joseph Gelmis channeling a writing style. Uh, way ahead of its time, he'd be proper on Yelp with that type of style. <laughs> like, <laughs> sick of uh, getting your your action in? How about some laughs? Try the ooh la la French bistro. <laughs> I mean, you know, New- Newsday is the suburban Long Island newspaper, so uh, you know he's, he knows his audience. Yeah, yeah. You guys want to see another movies this summer? Here's one for you. That's not a good accent at all. Anyway. No. Um, yeah, whatever, Gelmis. Get out of here. All right, on that note. <laughs> any other uh, info on the background? I know there's a lot mm-hmm. that we could talk about here, but any other particular info on the background you want to share? Sure, one best fantasy film at the Saturn Awards, Josh. Uh, number one for seven weeks at the box office. Um, that's a good one. We talked a little about the music, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. Elmer Bernstein, legendary composer, you know, uh, with the Hollywood Orchestra, 72 Minutes. And you had mentioned kind of 
the way that this script was, or we kind of touched on it a little, the way it was developed was that Dan Aykroyd was developing it for him and John Belushi, who, uh, as we know, died. Um, then he kind of showed it to Ivan Reitman and Ivan Reitman paired him with Harold Ramis and said, you know, like, you know, we got to kind of tone this down. The original script was like all this intergalactic ghost hunting throughout time. And then they were going to just like, like make it now, make it happen in one city, make it current, make it funny. And uh, kind of Ramis nailed that down with them. So uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of some background on there. Yeah. And related to that box office, as we noted in our Gremlins episode, this came out the same day as Gremlins, which is crazy when we're thinking about these major iconic blockbusters. And this it beat Gremlins, but Gremlins did obviously very, very well. Right. And that Indiana Jones movie was also out at the same time and had been number one before then. And then this was number one. And then Purple Rain and War Games. There was just it was one after the other. 1984 hits of the summer. What a summer to be alive. Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. We'll come back then in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on Ghostbusters. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1984, we've been talking about our producer David Rosen's pick, Ghostbusters. So, Dave, uh, what's your favorite thing about Ghostbusters? I love the ghosts as comedy elements. I think that is like really fun just seeing ghosts do all kinds of silly fun stuff. But then I think most of all above any and all else, it's Bill Murray. You know, this is Bill Murray at the height of Bill Murray. It's definitely Bill Murray at his Bill Murrayist, at least in terms of his <laughs> a, his 80s mode. I mean, it's very yes, different from yes. the way we see him now. And Absolutely. obviously, I mean, every review I read mentioned Bill Murray as like the focus of this movie. And he was a massive star and this made him an even bigger star. And he's funny in this, but I feel like Bill Murray's character is the aspect of this movie that has aged the worst in terms. Oh, of I'm sure that's his, well, yeah. <laughs> Josh and I were talking about this at one point about you, you go ahead, Josh, but especially the Dana Barrett subplot where like she hires him. And he's like, I know I'll fix your problem. I'll hit on you constantly, right? That was kind of what we were talking about there. Yeah. Just to to add to that point, though, my backup uh, Dave's pick for this season was going to be Revenge of the Nerds. So carry on. Carry on. about problematic. So this is is nothing compared to that. Um, But yeah, I mean, obviously you're meant to find him charming and he is charming. But the way he interacts with not only Dana... But one of the very first scenes of the movie, when he's uh, conducting the psychic experiment with the two college students, the one uh, kind of frazzled guy and then this hot woman and is uh, pretending that the woman is succeeding so that they, he can hit on her and, mm. and is then annoyed by Ray coming in and telling him like, hey, we got to go find a ghost in the library. We finally got a real ghost. And he's theoretically also a scientist related to the paranormal, and yet he doesn't seem to care very much about the ghost. He just wants to hit on this lady. So, I mean, I feel like from right at the beginning, my instinctual response is like, what a skeevy guy. And that's not Mm. really what you're meant to think about him. And it's not, I don't think, what most audiences in 1984 thought about him. But you get that. And then as Dave, as you're saying, when he first, uh, Jason, you're saying, when he first goes to Dana Barrett, and it's like, She's she's got a real problem. She's got like Gozer or Zool or whatever in her apartment. And all he does is hit on her. And furthermore, the fact that he doesn't take her problem seriously and instead just tries to hit on her directly leads to her being possessed by Zool later. (laughs) So not only is he being kind of an unwelcome, uh, you know, giving her unwelcome sexual advances, but he is directly leading to her possession by an evil spirit. Well, Josh. Let me defend him in this. You don't have to. In the end, in the end, you know, does he get her unpossessed? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Josh. Yeah. You know, after some rampant destruction of New York, some high property, you know, some ghosts uh, running rampant through the city. I mean, uh, uh, you know, kidding aside, he's so charming. You kind of, you know. I think in the 80s, everyone, every leading man was supposed to hit on every um, female in a movie. 
Like every female yeah. in the movie, right? So Right. So. But I mean, I feel like there's ways that you could do it that are either not even necessarily subtler. Like obviously they're meant to be love interests and that needs to be clear and that's fine. But I think there are ways that you could do it that were more mutual or less predatory. I mean, especially that scene where he first goes in her apartment and he's not just kind of trying to flirt with her. He's aggressively trying to kiss her and is refusing. She has to physically push him out of her apartment. Like that is not the right way to do it. Whereas we have like sort of a, a very mild subplot between Egon, Harold Ramis's character and the secretary played by Annie Potts who are clearly into each other. And that's perfectly enjoyable and acceptable. And it's a very minor part of the movie, but I feel like that is balanced better. And I don't remember Ghostbusters 2 if they end up, if those two end up in a relationship or not. I think they do. That was going to be my, my whole second quote unquote argument here. Come on, Josh, they get together in Ghostbusters 2. I mean, obviously I'm being very tongue in cheek here. Look, uh, yeah, we know. We know. We talked about this all season. We're going to have problematic stuff throughout. Um, that said, Bill Murray, uh, very hilarious in the way he deadpans everything in here, you know? Some of my favorite stuff in the movie had nothing to do with the ghosts. I love the interaction between him and William Atherton, you know, the bad guy mm-hmm. from the EPA. And Atherton was saying all the way to the 90s, people would just walk up to him in the streets and call him dickless because of that. Yes. As far as I know, he is dickless, you know, or whatever Bill Murray says. And you mentioned Annie Potts. She steals every scene she's in. She's great in this movie. Yeah, I mean, it is it is very funny. And I think the as much as I was complaining about uh, Bill Murray's uh, or Peter Venkman's attitude leading to poor Dana Barrett getting possessed, it is funny to see how little Peter Venkman seems to care about ghost busting. Um, mm-hmm. And that that I think helps the movie feel less serious or less like a big blockbuster spectacle, like, oh, the end of the world. And Peter Beckman's like, yeah, whatever. And so that that gives you permission as an audience member, as a viewer to laugh at it. So I do like that. Um, but I think to me, and I like Bill Murray, but to me, Peter Venkman as a character isn't as charming as the movie clearly means him to be. Yeah, and I don't think charming is the word I would even use, even though I'm sure plenty of people would. I mean, it's been used here, but... Uh, to me, it's it was just straight, you know, the 80s version of funny, which is not very OK now, <laughs> but you know, at the time was hilarious, you know? Yeah. Well, well, but I mean, overall, not only the way he interacts with Dana, but just as a person, he's funny, but I don't know if he's trying, like, I wouldn't want to spend time with Peter Bankman. He seems like Hell a little no. dick. Well, Josh, yes. I don't mean to ruin it for you, but he's not a real person, so you don't have to spend time with <laughs> well, him. Well, right. But I mean, in terms of the, the world of the movie, I mean... And he kind of, you know, he's supposed to be great friends with Ray and Egon there who are so enthused. They're such like super nerds about ghosts. And and he just really mocks them and dismisses them the whole time. He's not a very good friend. Uh, I'm not going to go that far. He's there. He's in it. You know, he he helps defeat, save the day, Josh. He's a big part of sure. uh, all that stuff, you know. And, and of course, he's the one who stands up the most to um, William Atherton. So, you know, I uh, I think you're just... You're overdoing the cancel Venkman hashtag right now. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I'm not. I'm just. I'm saying it. Just the, you know, he wasn't. He wasn't as entertaining to me as I think he's meant to be, or that as the movie makes him out to be. But I still enjoy the movie. I mean, I think it's still a fun movie to watch, and I like it. And he, Murray is a reason. But I feel like at the time, all the response to this was so much like Bill Murray, Bill Murray, Bill Murray, and also some other stuff. And I, I feel like there's plenty of other entertaining aspects. Yeah, that. I mean, he was just on that uh, rocket, though. You know, he was, you know, well, I, I want to say that, but at the same time, he did the Razor's Edge, which was like his pet project that did nothing, right? You know, but this one was such a hit that he basically took four years off from acting after this, moved to France and hung out and then came back for Scrooge. But they... um you know, there was a studio head who basically said the two names that could sell $10 million of tickets in the 80s were Bill Murray and uh, Eddie Murphy. Uh, those were the two. So, And of course, Eddie, Eddie Murphy, originally, they were trying to get him to appear in this movie. Yes, among others, Josh. And uh, I will go through those others now um, for you. Oh, thank you. Yes, just for you, Josh. <laughs> Dave, you can take a break. Co- cover your ears, Dave. <laughs> Yeah, no. Uh, let's see. Where's that? Oh, yeah. So Eddie Murphy as Winston, John Candy as the 
Louis, the Lewis character. Um, let's see, Julia Roberts in the Dana Barrett character. Uh, Sandra Bernhardt as the Annie Potts character. That could have been fun. And then the original Gozer was supposed to be Paul Rubens. That would have been great, I think, because Gozer, mm. after all that buildup, doesn't really make much of an impression when she finally shows up and they defeat her relatively quickly. So uh, I think Paul Rubens could have really done something weird and interesting with that. Yeah, I, I think you were alluding to it in the first segment, Josh, about like, how did this become such a pop cultural phenomenon? Because like, I took notes on the third act and I'm like, what the hell, man? None of this really makes any sense or has me you know, interested at all. There's like, so you got Zool, who's the gatekeeper, and Vince Clortho, who's the key master, right? And they possess Lewis and Dana. And now that these two are possessed as key master and gatekeeper, Gozer the Gozerian could come out. But Gozer only comes out and just says, choose the form of your destructor. And that leads to the State Puff Marshmallow Man. And no one's ever in any danger at all. And uh, the explanation for all of those things and, you know, the Evo Shandor character who, like, was a Gozer believer who designed the building so a ghost can kind of transport themselves to that dimension. None of that made any, like, really made me care or made any sense at all. No, and I mean, and I think one thing that this movie does well is that there's still enough comedy and you're still laughing that you're not really concerned. Yeah, about that exactly. Sense. Exactly. And I, and I think in part, because what happens is that there's the buildup to like Gozer is the big villain and then Gozer shows up and it's like, this is the big villain. But then you get the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, which on the one hand, as you say, makes no sense. But on the other hand, is very funny. And so that's what the movie cares about is what can we do here that makes you laugh, even as we're raising the stakes into this big special effects sort of set piece. And I, 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 I was fine with all that. I, I, I wasn't invested in the plot, but I didn't need to feel like everyone is in danger. I feel like if the finale involved like thousands of New Yorkers getting killed, it would lose the vibe of the movie. Sure. I guess I guess it's uh, I mean, you want your hero in a little danger, though, but I guess it's the combination of no danger plus the explanation of this where it's like, what, what? Uh, I mean, I don't uh, Huh? What? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is. I mean, there's briefly danger in that Egon says, you know, we have to cross the streams, which he has earlier established might kill them all. And so they do go into the final confrontation with Gozer with the thought that they might all die. And I mean, as viewers, we don't really believe that they're going to die because they're the heroes. And also because this is a goofy comedy. I think if this was a mm. more serious movie, you might believe, oh, you know, one of them is going to get sacrificed here in order to create oh yeah which one would that be hmm yeah i wasn't gonna say it but uh we all know which one it would be um but even even him i think in this kind of goofy comedy you don't expect or maybe like dana would die or or lewis tully the rick moranis character who is the butt of every joke you know we could sacrifice him or whatever but you never really think that any of them are going to die because it's just this goofy silly comedy. And if any character, even a not very important character was suddenly dead, it would give us too much seriousness to deal with. Yeah, I think that's fair. Have you guys seen this? Uh, this It's like a YouTube video. And then there's other articles about it, about how every movie has a theme except for Ghostbusters. No, but that sounds like one of these bullshit online theories that I, don't, uh, it, it, I know it is it is an online theory but I mean it really made a lot of sense though because like they they kind of go through every plot thread and every character and there's just there's nothing to it no, like that's it, not it, it all it works anyway Dave might I sum up the theme in these words Bustin okay. makes me feel good <laughs> that is a good well point. I mean if we want to we, we want to be serious about that I mean and this also comes from Wikipedia but it's it was not surprising to me watching the movie this time uh, when, when we get, once we get to William Atherton's character, the EPA regulator who comes in and shuts them down and and decides that they have to follow the rules, which leads then to all the ghosts escaping, that the theme is sort of like the private sector versus government bureaucracy. Yeah, big governments. Uh, right. Mm. And I mean, and Ivan Reitman, I think, has said that he's he's kind of a, a conservative uh, or he has that that pro-business, pro-private sector viewpoint, at least. So I think you could see that as as a theme. I mean, the, the Ghostbusters initially, they get 
drummed out of the uh, university, which I guess is not a public university, but you know, the uh, academic oh, elite. Liberal, libtard, liberal, liberal snowflakes. <laughs> exactly, they don't, they don't yes. believe them. And then they go into business for themselves and suddenly are successful. And what happens when business succeeds? The government comes in and tries to shut it yeah. down. What the heck? Leave these Joe right the ghost-busting plumbers alone, government. <laughs> I mean, they are presented almost like plumbers. I mean, I think that that, that the Ghostbusters are very self-consciously presented yeah, blue as if they or, are, yeah. right, blue-collar, like exterminators or plumbers or just another service that you call when you need something taken care of. And they can do it because the government isn't going to do it. And then when the city is in crisis, the mayor has to rely on the Ghostbusters, not the police, not... Any government service, he's got to get the Ghostbusters to take care of. This. But Josh, what do they say to convince him? Oh, they they say that uh, they'll save all the registered voters. So right. he's obviously looking out for his own interests there. Sure. Um, yeah. And I think, I mean, I do think that theme is there, but I don't think it's so heavy-handed that this is a like a political statement or whatever that you can't find this movie very entertaining, even if you are not of that uh, conservative pro-business viewpoint. But, I don't. I think mm. you know that's looking so far into it. You know, you know. Granted, Dinesh D'Souza is writing the next Ghostbusters, but whatever. Who? How did we get there? No, I. I mean, look, you can find that theme if you want to, but I don't think that's like necessary or you know, on the surface or anything about it. So it has a theme and, you know, it's, uh, as I said, busted makes me feel good. So, right. Um, right, right. but you know, yeah, I, you know, I like, um, we've talked about kind of, uh, especially in 77, uh, in that season, how, uh, New York was portrayed as such a giant crap hole. And this was like kind of the movie that started to help get it back. And I really thought it worked well, um, in all those urban settings. And then also with like the kind of all those New Yorkers on the street chanting for the Ghostbusters, that's a very New York thing, you know? Yeah, this mm -hmm. movie is is very New York. And I think the setting makes it work that it wouldn't have been quite as good or quite as entertaining if it was set somewhere else. And, uh, you know, they insisted on having it set in New York when they could have saved money potentially by shooting somewhere else. So I think you're right about that. Should we talk about, we talk about Bill Murray a lot, but what about the other performances? What are our thoughts on the other actors in this movie? Rick Moranis is a blast. I, they, yes. I like Annie Potts, man. I think she's hilarious, like I said. Yeah. And Sigourney Weaver can do anything. We know that, you know. Yeah, the rest of the Ghostbusters are, are all fine. There's an article that came out like a year or two ago where Ernie Hudson talks about how he had an earlier draft and it had all this like kind of, backstory on Winston as like a demolitions expert in the air force or something. And then they just started giving all these, uh, you know, more scenes to Bill Murray. And obviously that worked out for the movie, but you could understand Ernie Hudson's disappointment though. I looked up his filmography today. That dude works nonstop. So like he, he does, yeah. although he works in like a bunch of like all 99% things that no one sees. I mean, you know, to be a working actor, I'm, I'm sure he's got, you know, one, this iconic status and plenty of money from the residuals rolling in here and to still be a working know. actor, you know, all these years later, pretty good, man. So, yeah, no, he's done. He's done fine. Um, I think one of the reasons, though, that they took away some of that stuff from his character is because they couldn't get Eddie Murphy to play it. And, then, you know, sure. Got this this guy who's not well known. Um, so they give it to, to Bill Murray. Instead. Yeah. But yeah. He, he does well. I I was I don't know if I would say I was surprised because I knew this was the case, but I'm always struck whenever I watch this movie by how late in the story Winston shows up and just kind of tags along there in the third act, really. Um, and he's definitely a, a less important character. Yeah, the best scene yeah. with him is I think it's him and Ray in the car and they're driving and they're talking about what they have to do. And they play that great song, Magic by Mick Smiley, who that I want, I noted that song down because I know we always think of the Ray Parker song, but that song is really mood enhancing and really gets you pumped up for what's to come. Yeah, yeah, there's great use of music in the mix of the pop songs and the score. Um, I agree with Dave, Rick Moranis is so funny in this movie, and especially once Lewis is possessed by right, Vince right. Cortho or whatever the, the spirit's name is, because it's like a mix of this ghost and this like nerd loser, you know, whereas Dana is possessed by Zool and suddenly she's like all Zool. 
Um, but but Lewis retains that weird element of being this kind of awkward, nerdy guy who is also like an ancient demonic presence. And I just thought he was very funny. And he's almost disappointing when he stops being possessed and he goes back to being Lewis the accountant. And it's also weird to me, and not to harp on this, this aspect, but Lewis, who behaves almost exactly the same way toward Dana as Peter Venkman does, is portrayed as this like sad, pathetic loser that she needs to get rid of. And yet Peter Venkman is uh, this charming guy that we want them to get No, to no, no. They're neighbors. It's totally different if they knew each they didn't know each other from a professional setting. She didn't call him up to handle a professional task. You know, come on, they're neighbors. He invites her to a party, like not the same. No, I think I mean it, it's not no, he's not uh professional, although he is an accountant who could do her taxes. But I mean the point is they know each other incidentally. In neither cases are they meeting because they're supposed to go on a date, right? They know each other from a, a professional setting or they know each other because they are neighbors. And having met Dana through some other means, this guy is trying to get to her and is not taking no for an answer. And that is the same. You mean he met a woman and then tried to ask her out? Wow. Who's ever heard of that before? I don't think but so. Not on, I'm not only trying to ask her out, but but not taking her clear lack of interest. And, you know, kind he of asked her. Didn't he it. ask her out once and then invite her to a party? I thought that. And then when she said well, I mean, that she was. Implied. Wait a second. When she said that she was she had a date that night, he said, bring your date to the party. So you're being well, way yeah, too hard on trying this to guy, salvage man. this. No, no, no. I'm not being hard on him. I'm trying to do the opposite of being hard on him. I'm saying the movie is being hypocritical by portraying him, by the movie being hard on him, we're clearly meant to see him as this loser. And yet he is behaving in the same way as the guy that we're meant to see as a hero. Is That's all I'm saying. I don't know how anyone in a dope Adidas tracksuit could be considered a loser in the 80s, but that's just me. <laughs> yeah. But either way, Rick Moranis is very funny in this role. This is our second Rick Moranis movie of yeah. this season. And very different. You know, he's playing the the sort of villainous guy in when we talked about Streets of Fire. Not really, maybe not a villain, but he's the the confident uh, rich guy who who gets the girl because he's uh, got so much power and money in that movie. And here he's he's very much the opposite. Although you would think that Lewis seems to be doing well. He's got that party with all his clients. I bet Lewis makes bank. Yeah, he's an accountant <laughs> and he's living in, you know, the middle of New York City in a high rise. And yeah, he's he's doing it up, baby. Yeah. Um, so how about, how about Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis, the, uh, creative, uh, forces behind this project as, as far as their acting goes, Ray and Egon, they're funny, but they're definitely not as clearly defined. Yeah. But I actually think that that was good because, you know, um, Dan Aykroyd, as we know, can go very big sometimes. And I think like he's better here, um, where it's just kind of like he fits in. And and Ramis is always going to be that character where he's never too big. So, I mean, if any of them went big, I think it would have thrown off the chemistry of the whole bunch. So I thought it worked well as a unit. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not necessarily criticizing it. I think there's and you get enough a sense of those characters. Obviously, Ray is the one who's so like geekily enthused about ghosts. He just he just loves ghosts. And you, you, I think that comes, he loves ghosts so much he wants to have sex with them as we see in, in the. And in the was originally written as that, as like he does have a sexual encounter in uh, with a ghost, but then they moved it to a dream sequence. I think it's better at his dream sequence. That would have been a little too. Weird. Hey Dave, you um, ever have sex with a ghost? Uh, that's a story for another time. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, I mean, and then Egon with his whole like weird aloof thing even though he 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 has a thing with with janine the secretary but like when she asks him what his hobbies are and he says he collects spores and molds and that tells you all <laughs> that you need to know about that character and is a very funny line to boot so um i yeah i think you're right and that they could go i mean dan Aykroyd on a personal level is like ray in that he is uh real into the paranormal yeah and i think he could uh go overboard with that. And he did not, but he has a whole family history. Like his dad wrote a book on ghosts and his like grandfather or great grandfather was like a, a very well-known spiritualist or whatever. Spirituality. Spiritualist. Yeah, there you go. So, but you know, it's funny cause there's, they're so, you know, well-known for these roles. And, um, I, I, like I said, I really just like 
other than uh, Bill Murray. Like I, every time Annie Potts or uh, William Atherton came on screen, that those were like maybe it's because I know this movie so well. Maybe, but those were the joys for me there. Yeah, they're funny. I mean, they do exactly what they're meant to do. And and Janine as the the sort of like cynical secretary. This is just another in some long line of jobs that she has, and she's uh, jaded about the Ghostbusters. But then she kind of gets into it eventually, and. Uh, yeah, and William Atherton, very funny, and plays it straight. You know, what's good about that character is that he is very adamant about the seriousness of these regulations that are being violated, and he never, even though the way he's treated is funny, he never behaves in sort of this goofy manner. Yeah, it's almost, uh, it's you know, the EPA is the bad guy, the people trying to protect the environment. Like, sounds mm-hmm. like, yeah, that could have been in a recent administration uh, of uh, politics here. Um, I wanted Dave to, you know, I know we touched on the um, soundtrack and uh, I, I learned um, what an Andes Martinat is, Josh. Do you know that what that is? Or? I don't, but probably because you pronounced it very poorly. But uh, no, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what that is. Well, Elmer Bernstein, uh, you know, you know, like from like weird, creepy monster movies of the past, they would use like a theremin, right? Yeah. He wanted an, uh, an Andes Martinat. For this one, which is it just the, gets worse, which is the theremin equivalent like of, of a keyboard. And he had to hire a player from England because there are so few players who know how to do it. And I thought that was really cool that he had this big orchestra and then he spotlighted this very strange instrument. And I kind of wanted Dave to kind of give some thoughts on that. Do you know that instrument, Dave? I, I don't really know the instrument. I, I I looked up, you know, the soundtrack and I saw that about that instrument and, you know, that whole doing like an electronic version of a theremin thing. And But I mean, yeah, the music in this movie is just so much fun. And, you know, any I, I love that like old school spooky. And then it really kind of just goes all over the place from like, you know, the 80s pop hits to, you know, like there's like 50s sounding music. Like it's just like all over the place. But it works. That, that combination... Yeah. Is successful, I think. And that the idea, again, that Elmer Bernstein wrote a score to go through the whole movie, but they said, no, we want to insert these pop songs in here. I think that was the right choice. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Bernstein said this was the toughest uh, assignment of his life, but he nailed it. So, hey, last thing, Josh, was Richard Inland, uh, cinematographer and kind of special effects guru. Basically, they formed a new company to make these effects because... Um, you know, George Lucas had uh, pretty much every gig in town covered up there at Skywalker Ranch. So they had to kind of come up with this new company and they did uh, all practicals, miniatures, puppets. And uh, the body of Slimer was based, uh, was an homage to John Belushi. So that was kind of fun. Yeah, which is weird. Um, and I don't really, I never got that impression. But Slimer, of course, became this ridiculous breakout character. Uh, and you can see how, I mean, he's kind of cute. He's like the baby Yoda of this movie. Yeah, eating mm-hmm. hot dogs. Right, right. So, But I think the special effects, and we've talked about that, this a lot too in this season, that the special effects of this time, uh, they hold up quite well. So I much mean, more fun. Well. Yeah, there's so much yeah. more fun, the practical. So effects. I think the effects here, which are a mix, I mean, there's a couple times, especially as they show the the sort of wide shots of Dana's building after it's been taken over by Gozer that you're like, oh, this is clearly a matte painting. Um, but overall, the effects are remarkably effective. <laughs> That's a good thing for effects to be. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, uh, well, that I got nothing else on this one if you want to rate it, Josh. Yeah, let's, uh, would you want to rate it out of five Stay Puff Marshmallow Man? No, no, five Andes Martinas. <laughs> you have to keep saying it. Uh, I'm not going to say it because I can't. Are, I don't, are I there that many it. of them? Yeah, that's there's only one left in the world, yeah. and they used it on this movie. It, um, it gets three for me, and uh, like Gremlins, which I also gave three. Whenever it's on, you could easily watch it and have a just a lovely time. Three Andes Martana. Yeah, it's fun. I'm going to give it a three as well. I like Gremlins a little more than this. I think there's some more cleverness going on in Gremlins, but this movie is fun to watch. I maybe noticed some of those problematic elements a little more this time, but overall it's very entertaining and absolutely it's the kind of thing. And it's the kind of thing too, that you could also watch like five minutes of it and think, Oh, that was fun. And then I'll just come back and watch it at the, another time. So Dave, uh, what do you want to rate this? 
I'm going with three and a half of those things. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, the, the problematic elements don't bother me so much more. So the, the, the last third where everything just goes completely nuts and so hard to follow, I think is the biggest problem with it, but, uh, it's just so much fun though. Overall. Yeah. You needed a Tobin spirit guide in order to follow <laughs> along with this. Yes. <laughs> well, we will then come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Ghostbusters. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1984, we've been talking about our producer David Rosen's pick, Ghostbusters. And as we mentioned a bit before, the legacy of this movie is surprisingly massive. I mean, for a silly comedy about comedians fighting ghosts, basically, uh, this movie turned into this giant multi-pronged franchise in various different media. Uh, I mean, of course, the main follow-up, Ghostbusters 2 in 1989, which we almost talked about in our 1989 season. It was one of our audience choice uh, choices, but uh, we ended up talking about Lethal Weapon 2 instead. But I have A seen- better film. I'm sure I was gonna say I Mm -hmm. don't think I've seen Ghostbusters 2 since uh 1989 or whenever I first saw it as a kid so I don't really remember it that well did you see it recently Jason no I've seen bits and pieces of it on television but I haven't seen it all the way through in a long time but you know uh it's such a star as esteemed as Bill Murray will tell you it doesn't really hold up to the first one so right right and that was part of the reason that they never uh ended up making a third one is because I think some of them or even all of them were a bit soured on Ghostbusters 2 and weren't sure how to do a third movie. Dave, have you watched Ghostbusters 2 recently? I watched them back to back, actually, uh, last week. And I've always liked Ghostbusters 2. I know it gets a really bad reputation, but uh, I think it's just really funny, even though it's like a really stupid movie and not as charming as the first one. But uh, (laughs) I I just think I just think it has a lot of funny moments. So to to put it in other words, even though this movie sucks and is not nearly as good as the first one, I like it as much as the first one. I love it. Yeah. I mean, well, we've established in multiple (laughs) Dave's pick episodes how much he loves stupid humor. So uh, it doesn't surprise me (laughs) that he's a big fan. Um, And like I said, I I also have not watched any of this stuff since I was a child. But as a kid, I loved the real Ghostbusters, which was the the cartoon spinoff that had to be called that uh, because it needed to be distinguished from the cartoon Ghostbusters, which because of the weird copyright and because the title Ghostbusters was used on some unrelated TV show in the 70s, the people who owned the rights to that were able to create a Ghostbusters animated show, uh, which was more like spooky and supernatural and had like Count Dracula and maybe like the Frankenstein monster and stuff in it. But I loved them both and played with the toys related to both. And I feel like my memory of the Ghostbusters is more firmly in their cartoon versions, which for also some legal reasons that I don't remember exactly look nothing like the actors, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and I always remember Egon with his like red glasses and his like curly blonde, like a cone like hair or something. It was very weird. Well, wait a second uh, on the, I know on the real Ghostbusters, they were able to use these characters on the Ghostbusters. Were they also able to use Ray, Peter, Egon, and Winston, or? No, no. They're just able to use the title Ghostbusters and the concept of busting ghosts. Um, But it had to be based on this old series from the 70s, which in order to use the title Ghostbusters in the movie, they had to license it. Right, right. I know that. And yeah, and I don't know why in the real Ghostbusters, which was the official version and had Ray and Egon and Winston and Peter... For whatever reason, and I should have looked this up more, they were not allowed to use the likenesses of the actors. They could use the characters and the concepts and had Slimer. It had the whole story of the Ghostbusters, but maybe those actors didn't want to be portrayed in animated form. I don't know, but those characters as people look very different. Um, And those were the versions that I loved as a kid. Did you look up uh, who some of the voice actors were? Yeah, well, one one thing I love is that the Peter Venkman character, it was different. I mean, it's both are good, but in the first few seasons was voiced by Lorenzo Music, who people I think mainly know as the voice of Garfield in the Garfield cartoons. So he replaced Bill Murray 
And then Bill Murray replaced him by voicing Garfield in the Garfield movie. Talk about crossing streams. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then I guess in later seasons, it was Dave Coulier as the voice of Peter Venkman, which I don't remember, but that's also great. Dave Coulier, Jeff Altman, who was a favorite of Letterman and a well-known comedian, and Arsenio Hall was a voice actor on there for a little As while. Winston in the, in the early seasons. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have maybe watched, it's not available, it, you, can, you can buy it digitally, but I didn't want to pay money to watch the Ghostbusters, but I thought if it was streaming somewhere, I might be, would have checked it. I'm sure it's very bad. Did you find it odd that every time Winston uh, busted a ghost, he would go, woo, 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 woo. <laughs> That's a dog pound you know, right there. I never thought we'd get an Arsenio <laughs> Hall impression on this show. Half-assed at somehow, somehow we got it, and thank goodness that that was the case. But that, I feel like almost as much as the movie, that cartoon series and how popular it was and how long it ran for and the fact that it was so successful with kids really helped this franchise have a life that went on and on and on. And there was a new version of the cartoon called Extreme Ghostbusters. There were toys, there were comic book series, and that helps keep it in people's yeah. minds for so long. Video games, Dave, did you ever play the video game? I loved the Atari 2600 Ghostbusters game, which came out the same year. That is a really good Atari game, but there's been like a ton of great Ghostbusters games over the years. I think for the Wii, there was a really good one. Uh, the arcade had a really good Ghostbusters game. Lots of, you know, Josh, you bring up a good point. Like, like I was saying, other than star Wars, I think this is the biggest kind of like reach for a film pop culturally that we've covered. Like there's no reason there can't be a Ghostbusters universe. If they kind of get one of these uh, reboots, right? Obviously uh, there was the one in 2016 with Kristen Wiig, Kate McKinnon, Leslie Jones, and Melissa McCarthy. I never saw it. Did you guys see that one? Oh, wow. I'm surprised that you never saw that, Jason, because it was yeah. such a big thing and and all these big comedy people. I saw it. And I mean, there was so much ridiculous controversy about that movie that is so tied up in, A, the idea that people have this ridiculous attachment to the Ghostbusters like they have to Star Wars or any of these franchises that define people's childhoods, which... Yeah, move on. I, I just, move I, on, kids. I don't get that. Right. I mean, but also there was a lot of sexism in the idea that how could women take over this, you know, because ghost busting is a man's job or something. I, I don't even know what it was, but it was there was so much of this discourse before the movie even came out, before anyone even saw it, that it was exhausting. And to me, the movie itself is is okay. Um, it's mm -hmm. funny in the funny parts. I think it fails at what the original kind of succeeds at is that when it gets into the big special effects stuff at the end, at the, in the climax, it really gets lost in that. And the comedy kind of gets falls by the wayside and it's too long and it, it kind of drags out. But I mean, all of those, those stars, they're funny people. And there's a lot of funny lines and funny bits in it. And Chris Hemsworth, who plays their dim secretary is funny. It gets to show off his, his comedy side. So I like it fine, but I don't love it. So I don't know. Yeah. Dave, did you see it? Yeah, I, I feel exactly the same way. It it loses out in some of the special effects stuff, but it definitely has a lot of good funny moments, and it's it's fun. Well, my daughter likes this one, the original, but she does not like the one uh, from 2016. So, oh, she mm. watched it without you. Yeah, she's got she's she has her own life, Josh. She All can right. do things. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Yeah, I mean, it's not a great movie, and I think it's a shame because it was a good idea as a way to reboot this, but uh, I don't know that it worked. But on the other hand, the, I mean, we haven't seen the upcoming Ghostbusters Afterlife, which is a direct continuation of the original movies. But I mean, based on the trailers for that, it looks like they decided that this Ghostbusters means so much to people that we're gonna make it real serious. And I think that's just the wrong way to go with it. Well, this. we haven't knows? seen it yet. I mean, maybe it, maybe it's a preview like for some, like Bumblebee, for instance, right? Where um, they really captured, I think, um, you know, the tone and the reverence of the 80s. But it was uh, some serious thing. It looks like kind of like a Super 8 or something like that. And uh, it's a mix of both male and female teenagers. And uh, I, uh, the kid Finn from uh, Stranger Things, what's his last name? Uh, Finn Wolfhard. Come on. He's got a great name. How can you not remember that? Yeah, that's that's uh, that is a name right there. So and then I know Bill Murray is like kind of secretly cameoing in it. We think I think right? they all are. So we'll see. But yeah, I mean, dude, Dan Aykroyd from creating this, like 
And now he's a successful, uh, what is he, a tequila rock on tour or a whiskey rock on tour or something like that? No, so, rock on tour is not the word you want. Entrepreneur. That's what I said, yes. Josh. He's an entrepreneur <laughs> of that. Yeah, the crystal, crystal head vodka is his huge thing. And yeah, I mean, I feel like, uh, as I was saying, he, he is so into the paranormal that at this point, Dan Aykroyd is now guy who sells vodka and loves UFOs way more than he is an actor or writer. Um, but he is the one who really keeps this alive. I mean, he and Ivan Reitman formed a company and you talk about the Ghostbusters universe. They've been determined to make that happen, even in the face of uh, lack of success. I mean, the, the Paul Feig movie, in addition to all its controversy, did not do very well at the box office, but they're soldiering on with all of this. And I think there's a Ghostbusters animated movie in the works, and I'm not sure which characters that will involve, but that's another thing that Dan Aykroyd is working on. Um, and then uh, directing the new one, Jason Reitman, Ivan Reitman's kid, who right. is, uh, he's a go for broke. He either hits home runs or strikes out with every movie, I think. So Yeah, and this is, I mean, he hasn't made this kind of movie. I mean, he hasn't made a blockbuster effects-driven kind of thing on this scale before, so we'll see. But neither had his father before making Ghostbusters. And of course, that worked out well. And that really catapulted Ivan Reitman into this space of making blockbuster comedies. I mean, he made multiple movies with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Twins and Kindergarten Cop and Junior, which I mean, obviously Schwarzenegger is known for action. And those aren't and Kindergarten Cop is kind of an action comedy. It's great. Um, I watched I it. haven't seen that. I watched it recently with with my daughter again. The comedy really holds up. And Schwarzenegger is so perfect in that movie. Like, it's really good. Yeah, and uh, I I remember liking Dave a lot. Yeah, the uh, the uh, movie with Kevin Klein as the imp- imposter president. But I mean, I think that was this is the thing is that like if you were looking for a, a comedy that would be a box office monster, like Ivan Reitman was the guy to do it for the next decade plus. Well, and before he had also directed National Lampoon's Vacation, Caddyshack. No, that's, uh, or, no, that's, that's, uh, that's Ramis. Harold Ramis. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm sorry. He he directed Stripes, is what I meant to say. So yes, um, which so he so he had a track record there, Josh. Yeah, but I mean, really, on another level, uh, after making this movie, and uh, you talked about Bill Murray kind of leaving acting. I mean, for him, I think getting to this superstardom that he got with this movie was maybe not something that he was super excited about. But he's still there. Like, I mean, you know, he can do anything he wants. And he and Ramis had, you know, very successful collaborations. Groundhog Day, as you know, uh, one of my favorite movies ever. Yeah, Groundhog Day is great. And uh, they they worked well together. And Harold Ramis, more of a behind the scenes guy um, as a director, uh, movies like that and analyze this and analyze that. (laughs) (laughs) They did Caddyshack and National Lampoon's Vacation. And, uh, you know, yeah, I'm talking about post Ghostbusters, yeah. but uh, no, Harold Ramis, very talented guy, and and his his death in 2014 kind of put an end to the idea of doing another Ghostbusters movie just with the original cast. Right, right. But I think they're meant to honor him in that new one. It's heavily implied that those main characters are like the descendants of Egon, maybe uh, the descendants of Egon and Janine the se- the secretary. Hey, maybe. Josh, in that one from 2016, did Sigourney Weaver play a character who was not Dana Barrett? I think they all do, which is a weird thing. Right. I mean, other than Harold Ramis, who was not around, all of them make cameos in that in that movie as not the characters from the original Ghostbusters. Yeah, which so is weird. Yeah, that that you could see like is a funny, smart thing to do. But I could totally see how you know the Ghostbuster universe; these fans would not go for that. Uh, did anyone ever see the documentary Ghost Heads, which is basically like Trekkies or any of these like super fan documentaries. I have not, but I will once again express my extreme confusion at the existence of those kinds of fans for this innocuous yet entertaining movie. Uh, All right. Well, that was one other thing I was thinking. Uh, Yeah, I think we've kind of, uh, and Rick Moranis, um, if there was ever a symbol of 2020 and how horrible a year it was, it's Rick Moranis being punched in the face by a guy on the streets of New York City for no reason at all. <laughs> yeah, that was weird. And Rick Moranis, who had retired basically in the 90s and, and was out of the spotlight, 
came back in a weird way in 2020 between getting punched in the face and also appearing in some sort of TV commercial, I think. Well, he's um, on his way back. He, he yeah. like, everything he did was so, no, like, his wife died, so he retired to raise his kids. Like, he, yeah. a man with the heart of gold, Rick Moranis. No, so. I'm not criticizing, but I just find it weird that he did that and he successfully stayed out of the spotlight until coming back in these very random ways. Yeah, but he's always been a little offbeat and kooky and, um, Although, don't punch him in the face. He's Rick Moranis. No. We're not. We're no, not, definitely not. We're not pro punching Rick Moranis in the face. No, we're we're anti punching Rick Moranis yeah. in the face. I think we could even mm -hmm. go that. Far. You I could, think they caught that guy though? Is which good. Is good. Put that on the record, Dave. You can put that on our website, awesomemovieyear.com. Yes. In the about us section, yeah, we are anti punching Rick Moranis <laughs> in the face. <laughs> Well, on that note, that is Ghostbusters, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. I just mentioned awesomemovieyear.com. We're on Awesome Movie Year on uh, Facebook and Instagram, and I think we're going to start doing things with Instagram, Josh, because okay. I think so. And Awesome Great. Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook, Facebook and Instabook, and uh, you know whatever you want to call it. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. My website, goforjason.com, has been in a uh, ghost containment system for a long time now. Uh, you can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, which actually has some new stuff on it uh, related to the end of the year to my favorites of 2020. So that was exciting. Also at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And don't forget to check out our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, which has a whole lot of weirdos just like the weirdos in Ghostbusters. All right. Hooray for weirdos. And speaking of weirdos, what is in our next episode? Hey, Josh. Jason? Next episode is our cult classic of 1984, future cult classic. And it is a very weirdo uh, love beloved movie called Repo Man. So tune in next time for Repo Man, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. Bustin' makes me feel good. That's a, that's a better way to end. That is a much better way to end. <laughs>